If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting Glass Tire. All of the money we raise, since we are a nonprofit, goes right back into our coverage of Texas's art and artists. Our coverage is supported thanks to readers and listeners like you. If you would like to contribute, you can do so at glasstire.com forward slash donate. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hello and welcome to Art Dirt. This is a podcast where we at Glass Tire talk about topical art topics. I have a special edition of Art Dirt for you all today because today we are introducing our new editor-in-chief, Gabriel Martinez. Uh, Gabe officially started with us on January 1st of this year, 2024. We are very excited uh, for him to join the team and for him to meet all of you across Texas over the upcoming months. Um, I'm sitting in our office with Gabe, who is a Houston-based artist, writer, musician, uh, curator, etc., etc., etc. Welcome, Gabe, to the podcast and to the team. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. So uh, you and I, we've known each other for a little while. Um, I think I probably met you back in 2012 or 2013 just around somehow. I don't remember where or how we met. Um, But you were in Houston or you had been in Houston for a little while because you came to Texas uh, for the core fellowship at the MFAH, right? Yes. Before we get into Texas and what you've done since you've been here, let's back up a little bit. Where were you born? Where did you grow up? Where did you go to school? What's what's your background? What should people know about you? I was born in Alamogordo, New Mexico, which is the site of the first atomic detonation. Um I moved a lot as a as a kid, and so I lived in Montana and up and down the Rocky Mountains and um, ended up in Virginia outside of D.C., went to high school there, moved to New York about a month after high school and worked in a bookstore, my first real education. Um, I moved to Mexico and played in a bar band and uh, moved back to D.C., where I lived for many years and went to undergrad there at the Corcoran College of Art and Design, which eventually got absorbed into uh, GW, George Washington University. Um, Then I went to grad school in New York and I did a residency there, the Whitney program, before moving to Houston for the core program. And my experience of Texas is mostly West Texas. So when I got to Houston, I really (laughs) did not know what it was going to be like. Yeah, I always forget, like whenever I travel to the Panhandle or to West Texas, everyone talks about going to New Mexico for the weekend. And I feel like for any of us that are east of Austin, that's just such a foreign concept that, I mean, New Mexico is like another, it's like another country. Yeah. My sisters were very happy when I moved to Texas because they were like, you're closer now you can... You can visit more, and I've visited less since I've been here because it's a 13-hour, 14-hour <laughs> drive. You were at Columbia for grad school in New York. Um, 
I know I, I don't want to get too deep into like, Gabe, what was your thesis? But like in our conversations, it seems like your time at Columbia and like the people you study with kind of like really shaped you in the way that you thought about things. And while at Columbia, you were also the editor of like an arts journal there, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, it was a excellent program. It's really forward thinking. And um, I, I took a lot from it. I think one of the big influences was um, working with and taking classes with, of course, um, some some of my heroes that I had, you know, admired and known their work forever. Kara Walker, Mark Dion, Rosalind Deutsch. Um, these were people that I, some of them, I didn't know all of them before um, working there, but there was a really amazing faculty and the structure of the school was wholly unique and really something that, you know, was still influential. Um, you, it's easy to fall in the cracks. I mean, there's a lot of star power there. The galleries are kind of looking at open studios. They're looking for salable works, which uh -huh. is not really my thing, especially back then. Um, so in a way, my work, especially at that time, kind of operated in those cracks. And so I had a great time because I, I kind of stayed out of the way and I, I worked. I did a lot of work. It was demanding. Um, the ISP program, the Whitney Independent Study Program, which I did right after grad school, was actually far more rigorous academically. And you're studying with Ph.D., candidates and um it's it it was much more challenging from an academic standpoint um columbia was was challenging because you're making your work you're adjusting to all sorts of new things and just the speed of of, of grad school but you're also fighting to make space to have space when i um came to Houston, one of the things I really looked forward to was having a nice studio, which the core provided a really great studio in the old glass cell building. They have even better studios now. And the city itself is just so open and um, spread out. So there's my work really starts in the street as I travel through the city and sort of different pockets of types of urban spaces. So coming to Houston was like no other city. I had made art at that time before I moved here in New York and D.C., so in Manhattan and, you know, Brooklyn, um, in Washington, D.C., and Richmond. I was in Damascus for a while. Houston is different from all of those cities, and I was least prepared for, you know, these huge open spaces, a lot of which have filled in. Yeah. In the time I've been here, you know, when I first got here, there was massive open parks with, you know, 80 year old uh, live oaks in them, um, you know, which is now an H-E-B or, you know, some other mm -hmm. business. Um, so it's changed a lot. Um, but I, I definitely when I first arrived, didn't know what to expect. I was thinking dry desert, you know, sort of Texas. Yeah, what you knew is Texas. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> So uh, what year, remind me, did you come for the core? I should um, know this by now. Was it 2010? Yeah, it must have been. The, it was. I think it was like August 
2010. Okay. And then that's a two-year program. So you were here in from 2010 to 2011. Um, and what, what, it was while you were in the Corps that you started Alabama Song, right? This was a different way of – or you're, you're talking about space or creating space or finding space. And I feel like this was something – even though you had run alternative spaces in other cities before, like Houston – allows for a different kind of approaching that, right? It really does. It it definitely has it holds a lot of opportunity, a lot of potential for making things happen um in the art scene uh on a shoestring budget. I was in the core for two years. I worked for the core uh, for a third year, and it was that year that I started Alabama Song. So after I finished, there was an exit prize, and I used that to to kind of launch the the space. Um, like I said, my work really begins uh, and ends in the in the city, and um, that can mean many different things. But an engagement with the public is something that it is a thread that runs through a lot of my work, and so Alabama Song. Um, allowed me to engage with the public in different ways than other art-making um, ventures that I had been doing for, at that point, um, probably 10 years. I don't think I've ever heard you use the word social sculpture, but I feel like it's a little bit of a social sculpture. Oh, it certainly is. Yeah, I do think um, Joseph Boys, you know, had a lot to offer. And um, I think that his influence plus the situationists, a, a bunch of different artists that kind of intersected for me and how I could take that and um, run with it, not repeat some of those things, but really, you know, go in a different direction or um, kind of work against our, our, you know, work for something new and build upon that legacy. But yeah, social, it certainly is social sculpture. And, and, you know, it has the sort of practical definitions of creating a space for artists to mess up, for artists to test ideas, for artists to discuss their work um, with the idea that it would kind of recognize the vulnerability that artists face just every day in their career and, you know, trying to build a portfolio and a CV. Um, but it also has... Um, this sort of ideas of social sculpture embedded in it Mm -hmm. um, where, you know, uh, voices gather and kind of gain strength and um, communities are built or existing communities are strengthened. Um, At the time, there wasn't necessarily a lot of spaces for dialogue about the arts, you know, it was mostly showing objects. I feel like also just in general, um, I, I think I kind of dipped into this conversation whenever I talked to Pete Gershon with the launch of his book, Impractical Spaces, which Alabama Song is included in and you uh, authored the uh, page for. But Houston kind of has this up and down, on and off relationship with alternative spaces that like there are times... Like, I feel like back in 2012, 2013, we had a couple. And then in like 2015, we had a lot more. And then like it really, the pendulum swings a lot and it fluctuates and a lot of them open and close pretty rapidly. Um, And I mean, for 
Alabama song at this point it's around been around for like 12 years which is a, a long time in the Houston sense um yeah i i you know the pandemic definitely skews the the years and the numbers but i really think in any just about any city um there's probably a chartable uh fluctuation of engagement with those spaces and um it probably mirrors the economy mirrors politics of of the time of the day um I think they're crucial. I think this is where, like, you know, we still have fluxus moments. We still have these, um, you know, the art world is kind of prescribed at this point. And and a lot of it is, you know, just you can tell just from the language surrounding art shows. Um, But these spaces keep it vital, keep it urgent. Um, I think it is as people have said it's the dark matter that sort of holds the art world together you know the big celestial bodies continuing on that vein and not to take us too far away from your backstory but in that vein for you where does writing or what part does writing play because you know, you've written to different extents. You've written for Glass Tire in the past. You've been interviewed by Glass Tire in the past. Your work has been reviewed in Glass Tire in the past, actually once at least by me. Um, so, you know, as I, I, I like Glass Tire having artists on staff because a lot of times artists are our best contributing writers, period, uh, because artists have a really unique way of seeing the world, which lets them see other artists work in a really unique way. So for you and with that kind of context in mind, what does, what does art writing or art criticism or whatever we want to call it, what role does that play in your opinion and what does it mean to you? I would say writing in general, you know, of course it has so many different streams and facets, but, um, you know, as an artist, putting your practice into words is um, technically your job. You know, you have to make objects, you have to make performances or whatever your work is, but you really need to apply to stuff, and that requires putting it into words. So I think it is crucial. I think it's... um it's like pulling teeth for artists, including myself. I can write about other artworks, but when it comes to my own stuff, it definitely takes two or three times the 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 engagement to finish a text on it. Um, it gets easier. I think um, I, I read a lot. Lately, I've been re- really reading a lot of fiction. It's been a nice break from, you know, art theory and art history books. Um, <laughs> I can see work and like it and then read about it and really like it. Mm-hmm. Or I can hate work, learn about it, and then I'm I'm converted. You know, I, I believe in it. Does it work that way in your own writing too? Like what I mean by that is I oftentimes end up writing about artwork that I feel some type of way about but – I'm trying to figure out what that some type of way is or what that means or why I feel that way. Good, bad, 
like, dislike, whatever it is. It, it just basically I end up writing about art that elicits some strong emotion. And then I figure out what that actually means as I'm writing it. I have been lucky in that most of what I've written is about something that I'm already kind of in favor of. I, what usually happens is a deeper di- dive produces um, a greater understanding and a greater love for the work I'm writing about. Mm-hmm. Um, I I really think, you know, when you see a piece that, you know, is successful formally and conceptually, even though you that information may arrive to you at different points in your experience of the work. You know, mm-hmm. you may see the work and and you like its execution and then you read about what the series is from. Um, it strengthens it. It makes me, you know, like the writer better and, and the work itself, whether it's the artist doing the writing or someone um, writing an essay or a review. Um, I think they're hand in hand and I don't necessarily feel think that that is as apparent as it should be but I um, I feel that writing writing by artists um, has an interesting angle because you're kind of looking at how the thing is made and it's something maybe that's just my own personal bias but I go into an art show and I'm looking at the edge of the canvas to see how it's stretched or you know what mark making is this is it sticking off the you know face of the canvas um or especially the same with sculpture you know Mm -hmm. i'm really looking at the structure of how it was how it was made and you know the history that the materials um speak to and they all have a text it is all a text that you're reading um it's just a matter of putting those into words so i think artists who write and um and writers who make art i think you there is a a kind of unique voice that happens there. I agree. So, I mean, part of what makes me think about that also is like in your work or in one of your major shows, which is the show that I reviewed on Glass Tire, um, which was at the Blaffer Art Museum in Houston back in, was that like 2017? Yes, exactly. So, you know, that, I, I always think it's interesting artists who, there are artists who use text in their work and kind of disavow writing or interpretation at all, which I think is kind of one of the most more ironic ways of approaching it. But I also totally get it. Um, but then you use text in your work. But oftentimes I, I feel like you have a little bit of a – and if you're listening to this podcast, please don't turn it off after I say this. I mean this in the best way. But you have a little bit of a poetics – in the way that you write or think about things or even talk and not in like an inaccessible, you're going to every review you're going to do for glass hair is a concrete poetry kind of way, but in the sense that there's an importance of language in the way that you choose language, both in your own artwork, but also in the writing that you do. And I think I think we both kind of share that, and I think we both employ it in different ways. Like, I'm a little more maybe, I don't know, plain-spoken or straightforward while trying to also maintain some poeticism, and you're 
it can totally follow what your writing is, but you're maybe a little more lyrical about it, mm-hmm. right? It's almost like trying to think about, not to compare us to either one of these people, but trying to think about the difference between like Peter Sheldahl, the former New Yorker art critic, and Jerry Saltz's writing. I, um, I mean, the Blaffer show, it was titled after an Auden poem. And I, I do feel that poesis, is a tool that artists have to deal with extremely difficult subject um, subject matter. I think that that is something that other fields that are parallel to the arts, such as science um, and philosophy, you know, they're depending on uh, uh, an accuracy in what they're communicating. And in some ways, artists are, um, there's a truth that needs to be embedded in the art but the truth doesn't need to be on the surface you know for me this I have used a term which I believed I had made up at the time and then found out that it was an actual phrase and there's books (laughs) written about it Um, the term I use for that in my work is called uh, paratext and the paratext in a book is the footnotes, the endnotes, the library of everything but the central text. So even the table of content, um, title page, technically, yeah, everything, yeah, uh, pretty much everything. I mean, yeah. the title page might be, you know, but it basically frames and either clarifies or, in some ways, it could be said that it obfuscates the, the actual text of the of the work. When I started using this term, it was to recognize that there are sites that aren't necessarily contained within the artwork where other information, research, material history, all of these other elements that make up a work of art, there's these other sites where that can take place, um, including an artist statement, a press release, any wall text, all sorts of stuff, the paratext to the exhibition or the paratext to the work of art. For me, that freed up the work to be more poetic, to not worry uh, and carry the burden of having, you know, like a, a dictionary or a, or a encyclopedia on the wall to mm-hmm. deal with a subject matter. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, that, sorry, for me, that feels very uh, much like the operations of poetry in the sense that you are using words that may be used in other texts that when put in this particular sparse, terse um, configuration, you know, create new meanings. It's very similar to cinema also, I think. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, it, okay, this is a, a much bigger question, but very much related to that. What to you makes good art? Hmm, that's a tough one. I do. I would say just off the top of my head, it's a balance of of um, the actions the artist took to make the work, the material histories of what they're using. Uh, of course, the content. The content is not really high on my list. I mean, of course, it's important, but um, I think some of the frameworks that um, that content is communicated through are actually a bigger of bigger importance. Um, well, also just setting, I mean, correct me if this isn't what you mean, but setting up someone to have 
an experience and maybe that experience isn't explicitly what the content of the artwork is but if that experience is significant then it's kind of its own thing and it's just as it can be just as successful whether or not you get the explicit quote quote meaning about an artwork that an artist may be intended to for you to walk away with yeah and i i do think that you know every artwork is in dialogue with art history and I think it's important for artists to contextualize where their work stands in that conversation. And it becomes shorthand because you're using these past um, iterations of similar ideas and you're speaking to them. Kind of like musicians are playing um, to and for the other musicians a lot of times. Of course, they're making an object that someone, or a song or composition that people outside of that group will hear, but without that dialogue over time and in time, um, it's not gonna go far. So I, I, you know, I think nothing is outside of language and that includes artwork. I mean, we, we can, as artists, we can get as you know, abstract or spend eight hours in the studio and not talk to anyone, listen to podcasts or music, and you're kind of in your own world. Um, but the work is still very much rooted in language, rooted in this art historical conversation. And I, I, I think when I see a work that is, I feel that I'm jealous of, that's my, that's my, <laughs> yeah, that's my yeah. gauge, you know, like, I wish I would have thought of that. I wish I would have made that, done that. Um, it's usually because the artist has, you know, made a smart move where they are making something that has some sort of sumptuous delivery, but has a um, his- historical engagement and is not just standing alone or believing that it's this, you know, unique thing. Um, That's such a fine line to toe. Like, being informed while not uh while not copying while also managing to chart a unique path that is also like relatable enough to be read and understood and followed like that's i mean that's actually that's actually i i'm impressed that's actually a really definition of good art because mm-hmm. not much art can manage all of those things. Uh, even just math-wise, just numbers-wise, that's a hard mark to, to, to make, to hit. Um, I do think, um, unlike other fields, and particularly in pedagogy, where, where you're, you're basically being trained to find novel or original solutions to problems that don't really exist. You know, you're, it's not really a, you're not problem-solving like you're an engineer. You know, you're you're kind of free in that sense. But unlike other fields like engineering, for instance, you there is no wrong answer. Like a bridge will fall down if you get it wrong in engineering. <laughs> uh-huh. um, and so I, I think that artists are and, and musicians, too, even though there is still you know musical theory that you learn and then maybe eschew. But with artists, you are encouraged to find new and different solutions. Um, I think that trains you in 
um, needing to know what came before so that you know that you're not spending your life like making stuff that pe- people have you know done 80 years ago uh-huh. uh, which does happen um, that's I, I distinctively remember when I was in college taking I, I don't remember what art history class it was but studying a period of art history and, th- and then thinking well wouldn't this be a cool thing? And then the next week they taught that in the class. Yeah. Right. And it's like, yeah, of, of course it's like, of course you're going to try to be one step ahead of what you know. So you better know damn near all of it. I mean, it's, yeah, it, it really, it really um, behooves you to know and learn as much as you should. I mean, it should be inspiring. It shouldn't be homework. It shouldn't be like a burden. Um, you know, I think you go to different, art cities and or any city and you see work that isn't the blue chip but might be the baby blue chip or the you know the (laughs) prussian blue chip or the teal or you know and there are works that are parallel that if there was a network across the u.s for instance or even statewide you could categorize artists that are working very similarly and i think in a way that's a sign that you're kind of doing something right it's also a sign that you should probably switch and, you know, make it your own voice. Yeah. But um, I I think artists work in tandem a lot more than they, they realize. And it's important to, you know, really engage with um, those histories. Talk a little bit. You, you've mentioned music. And I said at the top of this that you were a musician. Um, you're you do play music. You may not be a musician in the traditional sense if you're not playing in a rock band. Although, have, have you played in a rock band? I'm I mean, pre- I, you have, right? I I mean, that's how I started in middle school. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> but talk, talk a little bit about your relationship with music, because I feel like that also informs the art that you make in the way that you approach writing. Because, as we've said, it's kind of it's all interconnected. Yeah. Those same neuraps, the same synapses are firing for each of those things. Yeah, absolutely. I, I also find parallels um, in, in formal or practical decisions in each of those fields. I, I have been playing music since I was a kid. I also wrote a bunch in high school, and I think at that time in my life had someone incur- – I had a great art teacher in high school, and so that was the path I ended up pursuing. And – you know, I never really, although I played music, you know, since eighth grade um, and in all sorts of rock, post-punk, hip hop, you know, sometimes with live stuff, sometimes with drum machines, all sorts of every everything that was available. I was interested in um, one consistent thread in the music for like 20, 30 years, maybe now um, is improvisation Um, and I think that is something that can't necessarily I I haven't really achieved in in visual arts in the same way I don't know if there's a similar I mean of course you can improvise and there's you know autonomous drawing that goes back to Dada and ever there but I, I think it's I don't know. It seems like there's an inherent difference between what improvisation means and the outcome that that is in art and the outcome that it is in music. And I feel like oftentimes it's 
easier isn't the right word for this, but it's but it's easier to be more successful with it in music than it is in art or maybe there's a better audience for it or maybe the outcome looks better even when even when it's like the same amount of uh, um, talent that goes in art versus music I don't know there's just improvisation in art it normally looks like someone scratching at the wall with a pencil right yeah and uh, of course, any critic will say improvisation in music just sounds like you threw a brick into a band room. Yeah, yeah. But certainly. still, I, I, it's. I mean, they don't necessarily translate evenly across the two, so it's kind of not fair to to bring it in. But in some cases, I would say visual artists are almost always improvising. There's just yeah. the option of erasing it, painting over it, you know, covering it up, or yeah. um, and improvisation. You know that term is a umbrella term, you know, once you throw in like chance operations, there's lots of sort of parallels. Um, one thing I love about music and playing music is that you're playing with other practitioners in real time. You're editing, you're executing, you're composing. Um, it demands something of you that, that, Again, it's I'm not I don't want to compare the two, but it's a little different from the visual arts. I mean, you're you're really listening in real time. You have to be in the moment a little more. I think with with improvisation in music, um, you really have to be in the moment. And um, I I feel that, um, you know, the virtuosity is the ability to hear those around you and not overplay them. Their freedom is, you know related to how much you overplay them. And so I think in terms of like, you know, relational aesthetics and, you know, this sort of art historical terms where similar operations are happening, nothing in the visual arts comes close to that level of um, engagement with collaborative elements, you know, in real time. I also think there's, you know, uh, music unlike art in the 20th century, um, it made leaps and bounds. It wasn't theorized to the same degree. I mean, at least by like phenomenology and post-structuralism, like the two kind of major branches of the end of the 20th century. Um, And I won't get too deep on this, but sound, sound art and, and, you know, um, music in general does not, it doesn't have doesn't share the same in-depth look that um visual art did in the same exact years even though some of the same people were involved and they were playing in the same spots and mm-hmm. um so terms like abstract you know i i wonder how people define abstract because i think in in visual art abstraction is something that is accepted and almost you know just it's, a stylistic well, box to check it's like boring at this point it's like people go into a museum and will walk right past the jackson pollock or the abstract willem de kuhn like it's it's i don't know it almost had its moment and it doesn't cause people to gasp and faint whenever they see it anymore whereas if i and this might be what you're getting at but like if people hear abstract or maybe another term cacophonous music it's like dismissed as noise. Yeah. 
I mean, I, 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 again, this is why I feel that it's a, and there are some really amazing people writing about sound and music right now. Um, but, you know, these categor categories aren't really fully defined. A lot of times people will say like, oh, you make noise music, um, which it's a little different, you know, <laughs> it, it, it is a different thing. And, and, you know, improv, as I have been playing it here in Houston, is really coming from um, free jazz, you know, and then to eradicate the jazz element of it, that sort of um, stylistic part. There was a movement of free improv. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a, still a huge term that has all of these different things. But anyway, not to get into all of that, but in turn, for me personally, I love playing music. Um, and I think that engagement with other musicians where you're really um, no longer in your studio alone making a single piece, but you're collaboratively guiding this composition. Um, I think there's something that is just unparalleled about that. Well, to bring it full circle, I feel like that in a somewhat maybe more abstract or non-traditional way translates into editing, editing writing, mm -hmm. right? It's maybe you're not working with five different people on one thing, but it's it's a duet, right? Yeah. It's a one-on-one -on -one yeah. where you're shaping and creating and responding and changing and tweaking and being hyper aware and doing all of those different things to buff up something to make sure it's of the highest quality that it can be. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I do think, um, you know, one of the parallels between art and music, you know, producing those two things is you're, it's almost mark making, you know, for both of them. And your, it's either your eye linked to your hand or your ear linked to your hand. And so you're um, training yourself to see better and then to make marks better through that. S same with music, you're you know, training yourself to hear and listen better and then to respond more accurately with that. With writing, it of course you're using your hands to type, but it's really about honing your brain, listening and um, you know, engaging with the ideas of the writer, whether it's yourself or your editing someone else's work, um, what their intentions are, um, how it's best communicated. There's a lot of parallels. I mean, I, mm -hmm. yeah, I definitely feel that these three categories, um, for me, inform each other, and they clarify what the other isn't as much as what it is for me like I, I i get a clearer vision of that i think it's also important to say that you know some of my writing is fiction some of my writing is comics that was one of the advantages of alabama song is you know i could disengage with all of these things that i was interested in there was never an agenda it wasn't contemporary art it wasn't conceptual art it was um how to make a synthesizer zine fest you know making comics um having curators speak mm -hmm. um so my writing just to you know 
clarify. Put a point on it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would say, you know, like, um, I do, sometimes it's the, some of the same artists and musicians I engage with in other fields. I send them my work and, you know, I get feedback and they're, understanding or misunderstanding of my intentions is part of this editing process. I think also something that I've noticed similar and dissimilar between the three is the way critique happens, how it's um, sort of commissioned or rejected or how those ideas are um, accepted when someone you show someone something and they make suggestions or, mm-hmm. or that's looked down on. Um, I think with writing, you know, you workshop stuff. It's it's a part of that. You know, the first draft is never the one that makes it to to press. Um, sometimes in music, you don't have a choice. It's if you're playing an improv gig, yeah. there this is it. So it's a little more nerve wracking, and I think that informs your sort of body. You know, your energy that you're using to produce it. With art, um, you do different drafts you paint over something you may be the only person who's you know making that decision um i think in a way it's a little bit less um you know a little bit less uh commissioned or expected to have someone come in and you know like this looks great but the face is totally messed up or whatever it is you know i i I, i've had you even at the core there was two kind of directors and you know you would bring your work to one when it was in process and you would get feedback from that person that would help it develop and you'd bring your work to the other director when it was done because they would help um shape the way you think about help you understand what it was and how it would move you into the next project Uh or series yeah if you cross those wires, you would regret <laughs> it. And I, I think that happens a lot. So uh, we're about to wrap up, but uh, I know I know you're excited to get out into Texas and meet all the folks <laughs> that are uh, reading and listening to this and et cetera. Um, is there any uh, are there any parting words that you want to let everyone know before? before they see you in the field? I am excited to get to the far corners of Texas. I have spent, you know, almost my entire time here in Houston, and I, I there's still things for me to learn here in Houston's art scene. It's, it's very robust. I spent some time in San Antonio. I look forward to returning there. But I'm, I'm very excited to travel and see some of the smaller communities um, and seek out, you know, new practitioners and emerging artists, but also really focus on some living Texas legends that, you know, I know are out there. And I know even people here in Houston that I'd love to to work with. Um, but I'm most excited about seeing lots of art. On that note, uh, thank you, Gabe, for being with us and welcome to the team again. And thank you for listening. Um, It's 2024 and there's a lot of shows opening. Check out our event listings and uh, go see some art. Go see some art.
This podcast was recorded by Glass Tire and edited by William Saradet. Copyright Glass Tire 2024.